was uh, thinking uh, this past week, past couple weeks about how, uh, and maybe this isn't an issue for you, but I think for many of us this is true, that as we get older, uh, we, we kind of get set in our ways. As we go through life, as we experience things and we navigate through them successfully, it becomes easy for us as we get older to get kind of narrower and narrower in the, the things that we're willing to try, to do things differently, um, physically, relationally, spiritually. We can really start to get set on our ways. And this was really illustrated for me. A couple weeks ago, my family and I got away uh, for a couple weeks and went to the coast. And uh, for, I guess, the last 22, 23 years, um, we have gone, our family, with my wife's extended family. And so there's about maybe 30 of us. And we rent this huge house in, um, in Gearhart. And we, we stay there. And so like I said, we've been doing this for a lot of years. And we've kind of gotten it down to a science in terms of who cooks and who stays in what room and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and I've kind of gotten it down to a science because it's usually my first day of decompressing. So we, we pack up everything and we go on a Friday. And then Saturday is our first full day there. And I've kind of gotten into a routine, I guess, over the years uh, that now kind of looks like this. We, we, it's... If your vacations are like ours, it's crazy just to get out of town. So you finally, you know, you get out of town. We get to the beach house on Friday. We get everything set up. Saturday morning, uh, my routine is I get up when I want to get up. And uh, then I go down and have breakfast with everyone. So all my wife's extended family are there. And then as soon as we have breakfast, my daughter and I, we get in the car and we drive into town. And we just have a, a time of silence because there's just a lot of talking in the house we're at. We have a time of silence. The rule is there's no talking all the way to the coffee shop. And then we get our coffee and then she and I spend some time together talking. We talk about life, talk about what's going on. Uh, maybe, you know, go to the Nike outlet, something like that. And then I, I, we, we come back and then um, maybe I'll take a nap, have lunch, take a nap, uh, read a book, take a nap. It's kind of like, the, so it's the first day. The first day on vacation, the first full day at the beach is this, this is what we do. My, our, our daughter uh, is living in Phoenix right now. And so she flew home uh, to be with us and, and to go to the beach, which we were grateful for. But she started texting me a couple weeks beforehand and she said, Dad, there's going to be a corgi walk in um, Cannon Beach on Saturday, which is the first day we're there, and we need to go to the corgi walk. Any of you ever been to a corgi walk? Anyone? Well, good for all of you for not having ever been to one. So a corgi walk is basically about 800 corgis bring their, you know, owners, and they all converge on Cannon Beach. It is absolutely nuts. And uh, this, is, this is my daughter, and this is a corgi she just met randomly on the street, what every dad's hoping for, uh, for his daughter. And she wanted to adopt every corgi she met. So there's all these, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And all I could think was, like, there's no way I'm doing that on the first day of, of the beach. Like I, and I texted her back. I'm like, honey, that's really cool, but that's not how we do it right? That's not how we do. That's not how we do the beach. Uh, honey, I've been doing this for 22 years. You've been doing it for 20. I think I know how to do the first day of the beach, and it doesn't include going to Cannon Beach with 800 corgis and hanging around, because let me tell you something. Do any of you own a corgi? Oh, good. Corgi people are weird. I'm just telling you right now. They are really <laughs> weird people. And so I just told her, it's not how you do the first day. It's not how it works. And she'd text back, oh, dad, please. You know, I love you, dad. Oh, please. And, you know, finally, we, we're, we're driving to the beach, and I'm just, in my mind, I'm like, how am I going to get this girl to understand we are not going to Cannon Beach for uh, the corgi walk? As you can see, we did. Um, <laughs> Because what I did was I had this little, you know, time of, of prayer and I remember talking to God and I, and I was thinking about it this way. Like, I have a very simple mandate when we go to the beach uh, for, with her family and that is to, to connect, to be with people, 
uh, to build memories, um, to, to love them. And what I realized is I've kind of gotten very narrow in the way that I think that that can be done and the way that I like to do it, when in fact there's lots of ways that we can love one another. And so I decided to play the sacrificial dad role and go to Cannon Beach uh, for the corgi walk. Now, I'll tell you this, it was actually really cool. The corgis weren't cool, but the time was just the time we went sharing the experience together, building memories, and I'm really, really, really glad that, that we did it. But it reminded me that, that it was difficult for me to do it because, you know, I know how to do the first day of vacation, and I'm telling you, it's, that is not it right there, okay? So um, now, 1,500 years before Jesus Christ walked the face of this earth, there was a guy named Moses, and we've been studying the life of Moses this summer for, uh, this is our 12th week, and we've talked about uh, how Moses was born into a, a, a slave race of Hebrews in, in uh, Egypt. How God, at, at 80 years old, uh, called Moses to lead the Israelites out at a time in life when most people are just phoning it in. God's like, it's time for life to really begin for you, Moses. Everything in life has been leading up to this, right? Isn't that what you're all hoping for? That everything gets really hard at 80. And, uh, and so God says it's time to get going. And so he, he leads the Israelites out of Egypt, across the Red Sea. They, you know, they received the law. Um, and I, by, by the way, I just want to mention, I'm so grateful to uh, Pastor Bill and Mike and David for teaching this summer as well. They did just a wonderful job and uh, such a blessing for us as they've kind of walked us through a bunch of this and, and receiving the law and getting to know God. They have this situation the first year that uh, they, are, they are out of Egypt where they come to a place called Kadesh Barnea. And in Kadesh Barnea, God says, I want you to send some spies into the promised land, in the land I'm going to give you. It's It's amazing. And I want you to see it. So just, just send 12 guys. So 12 guys go and they check it out. And here's what they find. That the property that God is going to give them is absolutely amazing. It is just the best. And so they, they're, they're coming back to Israel to tell them about the land. But, but here's, here's the catching point. There are some very large nations in that land that have very big armies. And the Israelites don't really have an army. And they're afraid that if they try to take the promised land, they're going to be decimated. So 10 of the 12 spies decide to go back and to lie. They go back and they lie about the land, they misrepresent the land, and they basically say, there's no way that we can take that land. The Israelites freak out, they rebel against Moses, they rebel against God, and as part of this judgment, God says to the adults in Israel, because you did not believe that I could give you the land, I will not give you the land, and everybody who was 20 or older, who was old enough to know better, who had seen the works of God, God says, you will wander for 40 years in the desert until your generation dies off, and I'll let the kids, I'll let the, I'll let the young kids grow up and take that land because you did not believe. So we're going through 40 years of wandering in the desert. This generation is dying off, and at the end of 40 years, God has raised up a, a new generation. And this is where we're going to pick up and close uh, the life of Moses today. We're now in the first month of the 40th year of Israel's wandering. This is the year that they're going to cross into the promised land. This is the year that they have been preparing for and waiting for. It's the first month of the 40th year. And in Numbers chapter 20 is where we pick up the story. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin. And in the first month, the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. So Miriam is a sister of Moses. She's died. And all, what we're seeing now is kind of some of the leaders are, are dying and, and Aaron is about to die as well. This generation is going to die off and the new generation is going to enter the land. 
Now there's no water for the congregation there, and they assemble themselves against Moses and against Aaron. So what's happening here is they're running out of water. And so instead of going to Moses, going to Aaron and saying, hey, what can we do to solve the problem? They just basically go for a showdown here. They're against him. And the people quarreled with Moses and they said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle, and why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. There's no water to drink. All these things existed in the promised land, but not where they are. Now, a little background here. This actually, if you've studied the book of Exodus, you'll know that this sounds very familiar because there's a story in Exodus 17 in the first year of their wandering that sounds a lot like this story. In that first year, they, they came to a place where they had run out of water. And so, like here, they, they turned against Moses and um, like in the story we're looking at today, God told Moses to gather the people together and God told Moses to strike a particular rock and that what would happen is water would flow out of that rock. And so back in, in uh, chapter 17 of Exodus, Moses did what God told him to do and God did what, what he said he would do. He provided water out of a rock, as crazy as that sounds. So now it's 40 years later, 40 years later, a very similar situation. In verse six, and then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell on their faces, that is, they, they prayed. They prayed, they started with prayer. They sought God. They could have said, we've been here before. We've seen this before. We know how to fix this problem. But they didn't. They went to the Lord, and they sought God. And the Lord spoke to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, here's, here's what we're gonna do. I want you to take that staff of yours, and I want you to assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and I want you to tell the rock, I want you to speak to the rock, and tell it to yield water. And so you shall bring water out from the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and to the cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he had commanded him. So God says, here's the plan. Here's what we're gonna do. I want you to take your staff, all right? You, we've done this before. And I want you to assemble the people before a particular rock. And then I want you to speak to the rock. But as we're gonna see, Moses doesn't speak to the rock. Moses is going to do something else. He's going to take another route. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll dive in. Father, I thank you for uh, bringing us here this morning and I thank you for your word. And I know there's a lot of things that might distract us right now, but we need to hear from you. And so I pray that your spirit would be our teacher. Speak to our hearts right here and right now. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So a, a couple of things here. Um, a couple of days ago, I was talking with someone and they were asking me the question. They said, after preaching the Bible for so many years, do you ever find that you come to a passage and like, you know, there's nothing new? And I said, never. It's the thing I love about my job. I've never studied on a passage that I've studied 10 or 20 or 50 times before and not discovered something new. And in this passage today, um, there's almost what you could call layers. You could just, there's kind of an obvious layer on the top of this story that most of you have probably already figured out. And then there's another and another layer. I don't know how many layers there are, eight, 10, 20, I'm not sure. But I wanna cover a couple of them for you. And the first one is what I'm gonna call, I'm just gonna call it the, the purpose layer for lack of a, a better term. When you look at the story just on the surface, there's kind of a purpose thing going on here. In verse 10, it tells us this. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, as God said, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? So Moses gathers the Israelites together and he gives them a speech, which is really interesting because God told him to speak to the rock, not to the people. 
Instead, what Moses is going to do is speak to the people, which he wasn't told to do. And what Moses says to the people is, quite frankly, it's really harsh. He calls them rebels. Now, it's, it's true they are rebels. It's true they have rebelled against God. But here's why this is so important. Even though the Israelites were whiners and complainers and they lacked faith, God's plan in this situation was to comfort them. It was to show compassion to them. It was to show mercy to them. Have you noticed that there are times in your life when you just deserve to be confronted by God, but instead he gives you mercy and grace? That's what he's doing here. Who decides the right time to do this? God does. But here's what happens. By not obeying God and really talking down to the people, Moses obscures what God intended to be obvious. God wanted the people to know that he loved them. Moses was getting in the way of that. Moses says, shall we bring water out from the rock for you? In other words, it, it sounds kind of like Moses is, is saying, I'm going to do this for you. It's what he's going to do. And then in the next verse, and I love this, it, it kind of, uh, whenever I read this, it feels a little dramatic. I imagine Moses like getting his Moses voice going on here. And you know, he says he lifts up his hand. I just imagine being really dramatic in front of the people. There's a drum roll on the side, you know, and then he strikes the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their, their livestock and everybody's happy. But Moses kind of acts like he's the one doing it. Like he's the one providing the water here. So on one level, and I'm sure you've already picked this out, is that Moses just flat out sins. God told him what to do, and Moses does something different. But on another level, I think there's something else going on here that we may miss. Because Moses' sin not only impacted him, and it not only hurt the heart of God, but it impacted the lives of people around him because in his sin, he was hiding God's compassion and God's love and care for the people. It made me think of uh, back when I was in college and uh, Christy and I were dating. Um, I was putting my way through college, so I'm going to school full-time. I'm working a job. Uh, not much money, but one day I decided um, I'm going to take some of my hard-earned money and I'm going to buy some flowers for Christy just to you know, show her that I love her and care about her. And so I went down and I bought flowers and they were kind of expensive for me and I got a card and I wrote this card. I appreciate her. And then I, I, I went to her uh, dorm apartment because I was really good friends with her roommates and I went when I knew she wasn't going to be there and I said, hey, can you put the flowers and the card on the desk and then you know that would be awesome so they're like sure and I left and when I left um, they came up with this brilliant idea that they thought would be hilarious um, they took the card and hid it and they wrote their own card that said you know we love you and you're such a great roommate and so we bought flowers for you and so she comes home from class and she sees the card and the flowers and she thinks it's from them and she really appreciates them and then she and I go out that night and I got nothing right? Not a thank you, not a, and I'm really confused. I'm like, man, those flowers are expensive for a college guy, right? And the next day goes by, and the next day goes by, and I start to think, like, is she just one of those people that thinks, well, I deserve it, and what, I'm just in my head, you know, I'm kind of going crazy, you know, and then finally, they feel really bad about what they've done, and so they confess to her and tell her, and she comes and, you know, appreciates me. I probably got a kiss or something, I don't know. It's well, totally worth it in the end, but here's the reason I tell you the story. Because she had received a blessing, kind of on, a, on one level, she had received something, she had received a gift, received a blessing, but she didn't know where it had come from. She didn't know who to appreciate for it, and that's kind of what Moses does here. He switches the cards. 
God's going to give them water and grace and compassion, but Moses kind of takes the card and hides it from God, and instead he writes his own card, which is, you know, basically says, you're a bunch of jerks, and um, you're lucky to have me. It's kind of what's going on here. And by not doing God's work in God's way, Moses puts himself in the spotlight and he obscures God's compassion for his people. This is something maybe we don't think about a lot. When we choose to sin, it obviously offends God. It, it's obviously bad for us, but you realize when we choose to sin, it often, it often messes with our ability to make God visible to the people around us, our kids, our spouse, our friends, unbelievers. They need to see God, and when we sin, we hide that. We obscure that. So it's not just, it's not just about us. Imagine that. My question for you is this. Is your sin hiding God from the people around you right now? The people that you care about, the people that need to see God and his love and compassion. So on one lever, level, one layer, we've kind of got this thing going on here, but there's, there's more to the story here that I want to get to. And the second is what I want to call the gospel layer. And you may have noticed that in, in every one of these uh, messages that we've been teaching, the gospel has been there, which is really interesting because this, all of this happens 1,500 years before Jesus walks the face of the earth, and yet the gospel is everywhere in the life of Moses. About 40 years earlier, as I explained earlier, 40 years earlier from this story, back in Exodus 17, again, Israel was thirsty, they lacked water, they complained about it. God told Moses to get everyone together and to strike the rock and water would come out. Now, there's a significance in that story that you, you don't necessarily figure out just by reading Exodus 17. You figure it out when you go to the New Testament to 1 Corinthians 10. And the significance is this, that the rock in that first story, the rock represented God. And there's something going on here that you kind of got to peel the layer down to get. And the idea is this. God was leading Israel through the wilderness. God was taking Israel to the promised land. God had given them, you know, told them how to walk with him and live with him. Israel rebelled against him, rejected him, didn't believe in him. And so God says, you know, you guys are thirsty, let's, let's hold court. And instead of putting Israel on trial, in the story, what happens is God reverses it and he lets himself be put on trial by the Israelites in that they strike him, they strike the rock, and in doing so, it's, it's punishing, if you will, God for the sins of the people, right? It's a picture of what's going to happen when Jesus comes to this earth. That even though we were sinners, he was struck. He was punished for our sin. And so when Moses strikes this rock for the first time, Paul explains it to us this way. He, he says, and all drank, he's speaking of the Israelites, all drank the same spiritual drink. So there's a spiritual component to the story. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was who? Yeah, you'll say, well, that's kind of weird, right? Like Jesus was with them 1,500 years before he walked the earth. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff he does because he's eternal and omnipresent. All that stuff, the rock represented Jesus. He was part of the story 1,500 years earlier. He accompanied them through the wilderness and he provided for them. So when Moses strikes the rock for the very first time, it's a foreshadowing of the gospel. 1,500 years later, Jesus is gonna come to this earth. This is the gospel, right? He sees us in our sin. He sees us in our rebellion and our unbelief and he comes to us and then he takes the punishment for our sin. He allows us to nail him to a cross to punish him and he pays the price for our sins so that we can have our spiritual thirst quenched. Now, in the story we're looking at today, it's 40 years later. Moses comes to the rock again, 
And God says, now you only need to speak to the rock. You don't need to kill the rock again. You don't need to punish the rock again. Just speak to it and you'll get water. But what does Moses do? He strikes the rock twice for good measure. What he doesn't realize is he's messing up the gospel picture for you and for I years later. And that's what makes this a big deal. See, Jesus has died once and for all for us. And trusting in him connects us to the redemption of God. And Jesus never had to be sacrificed again. It's not like he died for your sins and then maybe, you know, after a while you sinned so much, you know, God says, well, we gotta, he, he has to die again because he wasn't counting on you sinning that much. No, it, it, one sacrifice of Christ covers all of your sin. This is what it talks about in the book of Hebrews when it says about the sacrifice of Christ, nor, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. But as it is, Jesus appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just once. Just one death for all. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of the many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, because he's already dealt with that, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Here's the thing. When you think about it, you say, how fair is this? Did Moses understand when he struck the rock twice? Did he understand what he was doing? Did he understand that he was messing up the gospel message? Well, of course not, but he didn't need to. He just needed to do what God asked him to do. And see, so many times I think in our lives, God asks us to do this or this, and, and we think, well, God, I don't even get what you're saying. I don't, you know, why I want to do it this way. We don't understand how we're messing with God's will. The point is, sometimes we need to just trust God, even when it doesn't make sense to us. When he says, speak to the rock, then we should just speak to the rock. When he says, just have compassion on someone, we should just have compassion on them. We should do what he says and trust. Trust him and trust his ways. And so that's the second layer here. But the, the third layer I want to get to, and the last one that I want to talk about for a minute, is what I call the method layer. And this goes back to the story I told you at the beginning of the sermon. The method or the mandate, actually, layer, we could call it. And that is this. That we are to do God's work. We know that. We're to follow God. We're to do God's work. But we're to do God's work in God's way. And this becomes very important. Many of us want to do God's work, but we want to do it in our way, which is pretty much what Moses does in this story. Not only do we need to do God's work, but in fact, the only, day, the only way we can really do God's work is when we do it in God's way. So think about it this way. The Bible gives us what we might call mandates. We could call them principles or commands or laws. I'm going to call them mandates because it starts with an M. You'll figure that out in a minute. So God gives us mandates. Uh, um, let me give you some examples of mandates in Scripture. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not a suggestion. It's a mandate. It's a command. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, not a suggestion. It's a mandate. Uh, forgive others as you've been forgiven. That's actually a mandate. That's a command from God. Uh, share the gospel with the people who haven't heard. Serve other people with the gift that, gifts that you have. Avoid sexual immorality. That's, again, not a suggestion. It's a mandate from God. Be generous with people around you who are in need. These are mandates. So God gives us mandates, and there's a lot of mandates in Scripture about how we live our life and walk with God. But a mandate is not a method. A method is a way of doing the mandate, right? So it's a, it's a strategy for getting it done, uh, for carrying it out. And, and God's methods to achieve a particular mandate may change based on his will, based on us, based on what's going on. So let me give you an example. There are many ways to love your neighbor. Loving your neighbor is a mandate from God. We all have that mandate. But how we live it out may look differently based on the context that we're in. So maybe one day, you know, you, you have a neighbor and they're hungry 
And you know it, and God says, hey, the way you love your neighbor today is feed them, give them some food. So you invite them to your house, and you feed them a meal, and you love doing that, and that's great, that's all good. And then let's imagine the next week, you come across your neighbor, and they're talking to you, and it becomes apparent they're very discouraged in their faith. And so God just kind of leads you and says, today I want you to encourage them, speak some encouraging spiritual words. And you think, see, I'm not really comfortable with that. Yeah, I'd rather just feed them. I like to cook, right? And God says, no, I want you to do it. This is a new way. This is a new way to do it. Or let's imagine maybe you do that and it goes well and the next week you, you see them and you realize you need to confront them on a, on a sin issue. And you think, yeah, see, I don't really, I don't like confronting people. I, I like just encouraging them. Either, I, you know, or, or I like just feeding them. You see, there's, God gives us mandates, but there's a lot of methods for carrying out the mandates. The problem is, we can kind of get set in our ways. We can kind of get in a place where we're like, I've been here before, I've done it before, I know how to do it, that's the only way I want to do it. We don't go to a corgi walk on the first day of vacation, it's not the way it's done, right? We get kind of set in our ways. And, and here's the bottom line, here's where this is so important. Because we end up, what we actually do is we end up trusting a method more than we trust God. And that's what's happening in this story. See, the first time Israel needs water, God tells Moses, you've never been here before, you're going to do something crazy. You're going to take your staff and strike a rock and water's going to come out. Whoever heard of that? That's, that's amazing, right? Now, 40 years later, it all happens again. But now God gives him a different method, right? Some of us would like to think that God always does everything exactly the same. And we find life very confusing because that's not the way God works. See, oftentimes, we're like, I've already been there the first time I struck it. Now God wants me to speak to it. I, that seems crazy to us that God gives him a different method. I wonder if Moses wasn't thinking in this story 40 years later. You know what? We need water. We've been here before. This sounds familiar. Uh, I've been here. I know how to do this. It doesn't involve speaking. It involves, you know, striking a rock. And so Moses falls back on the old method he knew, and he, he does it twice, right, just for good measure, to make sure it works. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, to hold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring the assembly into the land I have given them. Wow, this is huge. God tells Moses, you know how the whole generation's dying off before they go on the promised land? Now you're going to be one of them. Now why is this such a big deal? Well, he says it right here, because Moses didn't believe God. Now let me just make this really clear. It doesn't mean Moses doesn't believe in God. It doesn't mean that Moses doesn't believe that God exists. It just means in this particular situation, Moses didn't trust God. Moses trusted an old strategy. Interestingly enough, ironically enough, where did Moses get that first strategy from? God. Isn't that weird how sometimes in life God gives us a strategy, he gives it to us, it works, and then later on he says, I want you to do it differently, and we're like, yeah, I want to do it the old way. But who gave us the old way? And this is what Moses does. He trusts an old method for doing God's new work more than he trusted God. And the danger for us, I think, is when we face a situation in life that we've been in before, it's easy for us to think, I've been here before, I was successful, I know how to do this, I, I know the method that works, I'm just going to do it the old way. We don't pray, we don't seek God, we don't seek wise counsel. We trust in a strategy instead of trusting in God. So let me give you a couple of, of examples just to kind of fill this out for you, if I can. 
Uh, so let's talk about a few mandates and how this looks sometimes in our life. So, for instance, God has given us the mandate of sharing the gospel, right? We, we all know this. We're all to share the gospel. But there's many ways that you can share the gospel. So when I was in Bible college, I'd only been a Christian for a few years, and I wasn't really into the evangelism thing. Um, didn't know about that yet. Hadn't been to a seminar or anything. And so I went to Bible college. And when I was in college, um, one week they said, hey, next Monday there's not going to be any classes, and we're going to have what we called a day of evangelism. And I thought, that sounds sweet. No class, no Greek. Bring it on, man. So on Monday, we're all supposed to gather, you know, in the, in the quad. And so we gather there, and they say, okay, we're going to pair up in twos, and we're going to go door to door in the neighborhoods in Phoenix and just share Jesus with people you've never met before, which is petrifying enough if you've never done it. If you get paired with your Greek teacher, it's even worse. And so, you know, so we're going, so I'm going door to door with my Greek teacher, right? It just feels like a test the whole time. And at one point, I remember asking him, I said, you know, I've never even heard of this. Like, I thought only cults did this, right? What, what's going on here? And he's like, oh, this is, he says, this is the purest form of evangelism, Barnes. That's what he called me, Barnes. This is a purest form of evangelism where you go to people you've never met. It's really biblical and you share Jesus with them. And I, so, you know, for four years I thought, yeah, that's just the way you do it. And that's the way I did it. Then I moved up to the Northwest, started going to seminary, uh, read a book about lifestyle evangelism. Right? You guys remember that? Lifestyle evangelism. Lifestyle evangelism says, you know, you just, you, you don't bother going door to door. Just as you meet people, as you develop relationships, you, you share Christ with them. Like, you know, so I started meeting people who were like, door to door, that's ridiculous. That never works. God doesn't do that. No, you, you do lifestyle evangelism. And then a little later on, as a church, we've, we've really adopted something kind of oikos, which is a little bit like that, but God gives us a relational world. And we feel like that's pretty powerful because studies say that roughly 95% of people who come to Christ do it uh, in an oikos relationship kind of, kind of setting. So it's easy again, but here's what I see sometimes. I'll have people say to me sometimes, yeah, I really like the oikos thing. Um, there was a guy next to me uh, at Safeway the other day who didn't know Jesus, and we got in a conversation, but, you know, I'm just not really comfortable sharing people, uh, Christ with people who aren't in my oikos, so I don't bother doing that. I just do oikos, people tell me. And again, it's kind of like, but there's many ways to do this. Here's the thing I'm hearing a lot these days, this new philosophy, which is, um, first you have to demonstrate the gospel until you earn the right to articulate the gospel. That's kind of a tricky one, but let me just say this. Okay, God can use and has used all of these methods, all of them. And where we get in trouble is we start to think God can only do it one way. God can only, you know, get the gospel out one way. We need to be careful not to be Moses, to limit God and say there's only one way that God can do this. One mandate, but, but many methods. Uh, here's, here's another mandate. Uh, we need to make a joyful noise to the Lord. So the scripture is full of, notice how I put this. I, should, I could have said we need to sing skillfully to the Lord, but I know you guys. So I put it this way. Um, just well, let's make a joyful noise to the Lord, right? And this is one that people get really caught up on, really uptight about, you know? Um, so I've, over the years, there's kind of the stuff I've heard. I've actually talked to a pastor who said, yeah, my church, we only sing psalms and we don't even use instruments. We sing psalms. They're good enough for Moses. They're good enough for David. You know, that's what we do. And we don't sing those, those modern songs. By the way, modern songs, he meant hymns that are like 100 years old. Those are modern. He said, we don't sing those modern songs and that kind of stuff. Um, I'll meet people say, you know, I grew up, I, I don't, Pastor, I don't know why we have to sing these new songs. I grew up with the hymns. They were perfectly good for me. I love the hymns. You know, they were, I don't, 
I don't like these new songs. Uh, I just like hymns. I think hymns are, you know, that's when we sing hymns, God loves that. When we sing new songs, God's like, what are you guys doing? Um, I, you know, sometimes people say to me, um, yeah, I only like the new songs. Uh, in fact, scripture says, sing to the Lord a new song. And I like the new songs because, um, you know, well, for one thing, I can understand them. You know, there's no hitherto, henceforth, my love, or, you know, here I raise my Ebenezer. Uh, I had a guy say, I don't even know who Ebenezer is. Like, that's just really, I don't get that. Uh, I don't sing songs written by dead guys. I only sing new songs that are authentic, right? Here's the thing. God can use all of those. All of those. Where we get in trouble is when we start to limit God to one. That's where fights start. That's where divisions start. One method, or I'm sorry, one mandate, right? But many, many methods. Many methods. We need to be open to that. Uh, here's another one, just a few more. Uh, the Bible teaches that when the church gathers together, the word of God should be taught, the word of God. Uh, there are a lot of very strong opinions amongst people about how that should be done. Uh, so for instance, I know guys will say, you know, well, my church, we teach uh, a book of the Bible at a time, book by book. We don't do any of that topical stuff. That's of the devil. Um, nothing can be uh, gained from a topical sermon. We do books by books. And in fact, some people say we start in Genesis and, you know, we'll eventually get through Numbers, I don't know, they won't get very far because average pastor only stays there five years. So, you know, we won't get very far, but that's the only way to do it. I know guys that'll say, I only teach topical sermons. Um, in fact, people who teach verse by verse, those guys are wimps. That's the easy way to do it. Hard ways to figure out, you know, what people need and to give them that. So we only teach topical. Uh, people today, I know a lot of guys will say, I don't do anything more than a six-week series uh, because um, people lose interest after that. Man, do, do not go to church here if that's your thing. Uh, I, I have a couple of friends who are pastors and they don't even get to decide the passages they teach on the weekend. Their denomination does it. Every church in the denomination teaches the same passage on the weekend. Pastor gets to write the sermon, but he doesn't get to pick um, the passage. And I, my friends who do that are like, man, that's God's way. That's the only way to do it. You pick your own passages? They're like, that's crazy, man. Nobody does that who follows God. Uh, there are people who tell you today a uh, sermon should never be more than 20 minutes. <laughs> it takes me 20 minutes to tell the opening story, you know, so we're in, we're in trouble. Uh, guys will say no sermon should be under an hour. How could you possibly explain a passage in under an hour? Uh, there should only be one point in a sermon. There should always be three points in a sermon. Um, so, you know, a sermon should be like seminary class. Everyone should take notes and fill in the blanks. Um, some will say no, you, you know, there are people now going, there should be no handouts, none of that kind of stuff. Um, people say, you know, there should be a pulpit, there shouldn't be a pulpit, there should be a table. I don't know, guys are preaching from lazy boys now, I'm not sure how it works, right? But all these different, they, but these are methods, right? These are methods, and I, I, I think we need to be careful of limiting God, of telling God there's only one way that you can teach me from your word. There's only one way, right? We need to be careful, because God uses all of these ways. So one, one mandate, but, but many methods, Here's another one. Just throw it in for good measure. It's always good in a Baptist church. Uh, don't get drunk, uh, you know, with alcohol. The, that's a mandate from Scripture, but you may have noticed the methods vary. So sometimes people say, here's my method, I never drink alcohol. All right, so that's actually fairly, if you don't ever drink alcohol, there's a good chance you will never get drunk. Uh, some people say, oh, well, I don't do that because the Bible doesn't say you can't drink alcohol. It just says don't get drunk, so I limit. I only have one. You know, or I only have one at a time. Or, you know, I, I, don't, drink, I don't drink hard alcohol. You know, whatever that is. I don't have Seagram's coolers. or I'm not sure what that is. Uh, I never drink alone. That's a strategy people tell me. So there's always accountability. You know, some people say, hey, Jesus brought the wine to the wedding, so so do I. You know, it's kind of like, that. now here's the reality. They're just one mandate. Don't get drunk. 
but many methods. And, and these methods vary by people. And in fact, here's one thing I've noticed as I've grown older. There are people who used to tell me, um, yeah, I drink alcohol, I feel free, who later in life said, you know, I don't feel free anymore by God. Like God's doing a new thing and now I can't drink. I've had people say the opposite. Grew up in the church, didn't think I could drink. Now I have a glass of wine every now and then. I think it's okay, I think God and I are good. Things change. Here's the other reason that it's important. We need to be careful not to say that God only has one method for this mandate, mandate and start to project that on everyone else and judge everyone else when in fact they may actually be doing God's will. Uh, a couple more. Uh, the Bible has a mandate that we need to get the word of God in our hearts and in our heads. Many ways of doing that. I'll have people say, uh, I always do my devotions first thing in the morning. People do it at the end of the day. They're not very godly people, you know. Or I use daily bread or I read through the Bible in a year, or I use NAV or KJV or ESV or whatever it is, right? Again, and, and people start to limit. I, I love this. I remember asking a scholar one time, what, what is the best version of the Bible to read? And he said, whatever version you'll read, which I thought was really good. Um, you need to read the Bible. You need to get into it. One mandate, many methods. Here's one more. I'll give you one more, and um, I'll give it to you for a reason. Uh, because I think this is very applicable to us as a church right now. So you know that we are uh, in the process of trying to uh, hire another associate pastor. And when churches get to a certain size, hiring staff can begin to get very difficult because you have a lot of people with very different opinions about who they should hire. I just want to share this with you for a minute uh, as your pastor. Um, the Bible is very specific about the qual uh, qualifications of elders. So in our church, a pastor is an elder. And the Bible spells it out. I've given you the passage in your notes. It gives us qualifications, but it doesn't give us methods for finding that person. So let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. I've had some recent conversations, in fact, on vacation with pastors at other churches who are also looking for pastors. And we had some interesting conversations. So one guy said, yeah, we don't consider anybody who hasn't been seminary educated. Nobody. We believe that that's absolutely essential. I remember at the time telling the guy, I said, you know, there's like five or six or seven studies out right now that show that uh, after a, a basic college degree, the more education a pastor has, the smaller his church is. Like pretty interesting stuff. Because of that, there are churches who will say, we won't hire anybody who has more than four years of college education. Again, now who's right and who's wrong? I talked to a, a guy recently at a church who says, we're looking for a senior pastor. And um, so we're only considering um, guys who have written books, have been published, and are well-known. We actually wrote letters to the biggest authors in the United States, and we sent that out to them. Like, that's their, that's their approach, their strategy. Some people will say, uh, oh, well, we only hire professional pastors. In other words, I say we only hire seminary-educated people who have been working in another church for years. We wouldn't even consider somebody who isn't a pastor right now. Now, on the other hand, there are churches who will say, you know, in the passage about the qualifications of elders, it says that they first need to be tested by you. And there are some churches who will say, yeah, we actually only hire new pastors from within our church. We only hire people who hadn't been pastors, but who have been to our church. We know their qualifications. We, you know, we know their character. They've been proven. Now, again, I sat down with a couple of these guys lately, and it was a very heated conversation because every one of them thought that their method was the only possible method that God can only use. The reality is that God has used all of them, but God's mandate is clear about the qualifications. But his methods may change. So again, we need to be careful 
as people about telling God, this is the only way that you can work in my life, in my marriage, in my family, in my job, in my church. It's the only way. We end up being like Moses and missing so much of what God has for us. Beware of trusting methods more than trusting God himself. God gives us, for instance, a mandate to serve other people, but that that method may change over the years. Some of you lately have been sharing with me about how God is moving you to serve in the church in a new way that you've never served before. And it's scary for you. You're telling me, you know, I, I used to do this and I know how to do this and now God's asking me to do this. And I, I've never worked with kids. I've never worked with them. I've never worked with adults. You know, we've got some of our people who are getting involved in family promise and, and ministering to uh, people in our community who are homeless and some of you have said, you know, I'm, I've never done that before, but I feel like God's calling me to do it, so I'm going to step out and do it. It's kind of scary. But God's calling me to a new thing. Same mandate, serving other people, new method. For some of you, maybe it's, maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's the way you're serving and loving your spouse right now, and God's calling you to a new way of doing that. Right? Maybe it's the way you're raising your kids. And sometimes I'll get in these conversations with parents who will say, I don't get it. I, I, you know, we raised our this kid and this kid and we did it the same way and it worked right. This kid, it's just not working. You know, but we've done it before. We know how to do it. Sometimes God calls us to a different method. How you do your finances. Let me just say this. And I, I should have probably put it on the screen, but I didn't. So let me just say this to you. This is important. See, Jesus is not primarily someone from whom we get successful strategies for living. Unfortunately, in so many churches today, in so many Christian books, this is all that the gospel is about anymore. Here's a problem. Here's how God solves it. Here's where you're struggling. Here's where you find success. Folks, Jesus is not primarily a self-help book for being successful in dealing with your problems. Jesus is a savior that we love and trust to lead us moment by moment. And sometimes he will change the method that he wants to use in our life. In Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, there's some good advice. It says this, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on an old way of doing things just because it worked before. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. Even when you're dealing with something you've dealt with before, even when it went well before, if God is calling you to a new way, seek him, trust him when it comes to the mandates and also the methods. Here's my question. Are you doing God's work and are you doing it in God's way? Let's pray together.